Hello, flight instructors and NAFI members. This is John Niehaus, Director of Program Development for the National Association of Flight Instructors, welcoming you back to another episode of the NAFI More Right Rudder podcast, the podcast for flight instructors on the go. And uh, today, I uh, I don't have a specific sponsor, but uh, I'm going to fill the uh, the spot in a little bit of a self-serving way. If uh, if you like the content that you hear on this podcast, now a lot of it is also featured on our YouTube channel. All you have to do is go to YouTube, look up National Association of Flight Instructors. You'll see some of this stuff and a whole bunch more. Um, you'll get to see how these things are, are sort of made and you'll get to see who we are um, and uh, just a lot of cool stuff. So if you, uh, if you could, um, I'd highly uh, appreciate it or greatly appreciate it. If you uh, if you went to the site, subscribe to the channel. We're we're trying our best to uh, to find ways of of gaining additional subscribers because the more subscribers we get, the 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 more opportunities we have to make awesome content like this that uh, that benefits the community, benefits flight instructors as a whole. So um, if you could uh, follow our 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 YouTube page, um, maybe even follow and subscribe to the uh, the podcast. And uh, check out our other stuff. Uh, we've got a specific NAFI group on Facebook. So we've got our NAFI page, but we also have the group. And we're on pretty much every other uh, um, social media channel, too. So um, find us in whatever channel that you like to use. Uh, subscribe, like, follow, whatever is appropriate. Um, but uh, we're really trying to cross the uh, the 1,000 subscriber threshold on YouTube. So if you could, that would... Uh, really really help us out and uh, if you're not a member we'd love it if you joined uh, and you can do that at uh, www.nafinet.org if you'd like to talk to me directly you could even give me a call 866-806-6156 we'll talk we'll chat we'll sign you up you'll become a member we'll welcome you to the family and uh, it'll be great so anyways without further ado today's episode of more right rudder is following international operations and flight instruction. Now, this was a briefing room we did uh, almost back at the beginning of the series, um, and uh, it was uh, um, an idea that uh, came to us from Sarah Rovner. Now, she's a multiple-time NAFI master instructor. She's an airline pilot. She uh, owns her own airplane. She owns her own um, ferrying company and does a whole bunch of stuff and uh awesome in their own rights i also had uh randall williams and Ab adam webster and uh, both of those guys are, are really accomplished instructors and uh and doing a bunch of other things too so um the general gist was is you know what are the different things that that flight instructors can do to better themselves and then thereby better uh the instruction that they provide so by, by learning a new skill, like learning to ferry airplanes across international lines and doing international-type instruction, it's a whole other feather in your cap to, uh, to, to make the students that you train just that much more experienced and that much better. So anyways, without further ado, International Operations and Flight Instruction with Randall Williams, Adam Webster, and Master Instructor Sarah Rovner. So 
Today, my guests are Randall Williams. He's a CFII and an MEI, and he just finished his ATP CTP course. Congratulations and welcome. I have Adam Webster. He's also a CFII and an MEI. He's an entrepreneur and an aviation mentor. Adam, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And I also have Sarah Rovner. She's returning to a, uh, a NAFI video here, and she's a double I, MEI, ATP, master instructor, and also owner of Full Throttle Aviation. Sarah, welcome back. Thank you for having me. I'm so appreciative that you guys were able to make it. And actually, this is a topic suggested by Randall himself. So, Randall, thank you. Happy to do it. Happy to talk to you. And this is a fun, this is, it's fun to be able to get a bunch of friends together to have this conversation. Absolutely. And we'll learn a little bit about uh, the three of you as we sort of continue through this discussion. But uh, first talking point is how does international operations apply to flight instruction? What are the benefits? Randall, why don't you start us off? Well, I think there are a couple different ways to think about flight instruction. Um, those of us who are at airports, when people call and say, hey, I'd love to learn to fly, that's certainly one model of flight instruction. Um, and another model of flight instruction is supporting owners who are already flying as they move up into different airplanes. Uh, Sarah and Adam have done a lot of that. I've done some of that. Um, I've done some of that while working for Sarah at Full Throttle. Um, but an owner who moves up into a TBM and needs an experienced double eye sitting beside them so that they don't get caught in instrument clearances or procedures, that's also flight instruction. And so if we think about international flying, we all got into flying because we were excited about getting off the ground and getting up into the air. Um, and the difference between somebody saying, hey, I'd love to learn to fly and that the, the way that they light up when they leave the ground for the first time, those are very different feelings. And so as we can capture somebody's excitement about, well, you mean I can fly to the Bahamas? You mean I could fly down to Cancun for the weekend? You, you open up a different segment of, of student, of airmen, and um, a different possibility for them in their own training, in their growth as a pilot, and um, you really open up a world of possibilities when you can take people different places. Adam, anything to add? Um, yeah, I mean, just to expound on, on what Randall said and to, to give a sense of geography and how quickly it all changes. If uh, right, right near Randall in Brunswick, Maine is the Bar Harbor Airport. And my first experience, uh, you know, really working both sides of the border, for, for example, a client that just bought a 210 that was based in Maine, less than 30 minutes away is Yarmouth, Nova Scotia, over a bunch of open water, but it goes by very quickly. And, and those of us that grew up in the Northeast or with a foot in both countries, i.e., you know, Canada and the U.S., um, the, the, the freedom, um, well, actually, COVID's a good example. People that had access to Cessna 210s could actually have some element of continuity in their lives because they could go and get to places like Prince Edward Island or New Brunswick or Quebec City, for that matter. Um, while the border was largely shut down to everybody else. So, yeah, the, yeah, the, the, the the interface of instruction and the, the, the imagination, like, like, like Randall said, where you, someone says, oh my God, I can go to the Bahamas. Um, the really cool thing about, about it is that GA is also very different all over the world. So when you do experience GA, for example, in Canada, Europe, or, or Sub-Saharan Africa, you actually begin to appreciate the U.S. a lot because <laughs> it's pretty loosey-goosey and pretty fast here and pretty informal. And it, it's not the case when you're filling out a IKO flight plans and 
hopping across borders. So there's also the learning element has this kind of appreciative element where you appreciate the fact that being in the birthplace of aviation and then kind of bringing our footprint outside of it, you really appreciate how we formed, you know, a lot of those uh, aviation laws in other places, but also the, the flexibility in get, of getting in and out of them. Mm-hmm. Now, Sarah, the last time we spoke, I was sort of in awe with how many different countries you had been to. Um, you know, how does uh, instruction apply to going to all of these different places? That's a really good question. Um, to be honest, a lot of the international flight instruction I've given has been while crossing the ocean, whether it's one of our ferry pilots or a lot of times the owners themselves who have bought an airplane and they live over in Europe are hiring me to go along as a flight instructor and train them on the way over there. So I've given a lot of instruction to people who want to perhaps continue to fly across the ocean, which would be like, for example, our ferry pilots or even some of our owners who have these plans to do these worldwide flights and they wanted to get used to the operation. So um, since I only have a U.S. flight instructor certificate, even though I do have certificates in in Canada and Europe as well, as well as Belize, um, I can only provide flight instruction in U.S. registered airplanes. So a lot of the flight instruction I've given, I've kind of prepared people for continuing to fly internationally, whether that be Europe or Central America or South America or wherever the place may be. So folks, I'm going to open this next question up and and we'll just kind of let the conversation flow here. So if I'm an instructor and I'm trying to kind of figure out my instructor toolkit and I want to add something like international instruction into my sort of general lesson plans, um, where do I start and how do I even get into something like this? Well, I think that's a really good question. I, I mean, if I had a dollar for every time I tried to get into international ferry flying and got told I couldn't do it by an insurance company or by just knowing I couldn't figure everything out on my own, I'd be rich. <laughs> so, you know, the first thing for me is, of course, there's a lot of resources available on the internet. But unfortunately, the internet, everybody has a different opinion. And you don't get the tribal knowledge that you need from doing it yourself. So my best recommendation is that if you're an instructor and you want to start getting into international operations is to go with somebody who's done it before, even Mm -hmm. something as simple as the Bahamas. I mean, you can probably get away with maybe the Bahamas in Mexico. There's a great organization called the Baja Bush Pilots that helps owners who want to fly internationally and kind of gives them a checklist and a way to do it. But if you're going to be doing anything that's incredibly exotic, especially when you have to arrange for private avgas or get a, you know, a mountain worth of permits, my best recommendation is to find somebody who's done it before, you know, such as myself or Randall or, you know, or Adam and, you know, and, and, and use us as a resource to go along with you on your first few journeys. We see a lot of people on the international ferry pilot forums who are excited about getting into things and, ooh, this looks like a long cross country. I'll just do that. A little different than that. A good example is um, I had my very, my first flight in England, I was with Sarah and I had spent weeks and weeks preparing. Sarah had sent me lots of reference material that I'd been studying both about the plane and the mission and the airspace and we blasted off. And as soon as we blasted off, the controller said, stay clear of controlled airspace. And I went, ah, cause I didn't know where that was. And I'd been studying the flight for weeks. And Sarah's like, yep, descend and turn right here. And she had, a, she, she had her head already wrapped around it. So there's lots of little things like that. Um, I think you, you said the toolkit thing that you said is, is really informative and interesting. It seems like as we do things that we're excited about and we do missions that feel good to us and stuff that we're interested in, 
I think we are growing our tools. And so I think as flight instructors, it's important that we keep growing that toolbox so that we're ready when things come up. Um, good example of that is I have somebody who wants to do a lot of um, Cessna 182 flying. Well, okay, but what, what it means is that I'm going to be able to fly a Cessna 182 when someone comes to me and says, do you have 50 hours in type? I can say, sure, I've done that. Um, or somebody says, hey, have you, um, you know, have you done customs procedures before? Yep, done those a dozen times. You know, here's what those look like. And so as we do the things that we're most interested in, um, we are growing that set of skills. And as we say yes to more opportunities, more opportunities come up. Yeah, the, o the only thing I can think of to just listening to both of you talk about it is all the colossal mistakes I've made with not paying attention to the evolution of EAPIS and exit clearances and, and whatnot. Um, and, and by the way, I've, I've been lulled into complacency many times because Canada and Quebec was such a big part of my life living in the Northeast that um, a great instructional piece is actually, um, as Sarah and Randall can attest to, is just because things were one way five years ago doesn't mean they're going to be the same way. <laughs> and, uh, and my story there is I used to operate 135 between uh, Maine and Quebec a lot. And then I took about five years off and I, I came back on a part 91 flight and um, didn't believe I had to tell the Americans I was returning to Ontario because back in the day you didn't. Um, anyway, I quickly got behind multiple $10,000 fines. Ooh. And I had to uh, use my salesmanship and charming, uh, uh, assuaging, persuasive tongue uh, to convince uh, Officer LeBlanc to let me off the hook because I, I just was operating literally five years behind behind this behind the times. <laughs> so yeah, the the, the Apis stuff and the and the uh, letting letting countries know you're leaving um, is is just as important as letting countries know you're arriving, and that's something I, I learned the hard way with Quebec and. And, um, uh, and, and, and uh, Maine, but um, the reality is it's, it's the, the, the cool part about teaching, and Sarah might be able to test this, teaching in an N-numbered airplane anywhere in the world, you, you're, you're kind of in a little FAA bubble, so you're doing your instruction in Cape Town or Namibia or what have you, but the minute you start going across boundaries, uh, you, you, you want to have that tribal knowledge um, to the point where you, I had, I, I had the cell phones and personal cell phones of customs officers that I got through a network of people in South Africa because I knew that it would just make life that much easier to be pretty intimate with the town you're going to, um, who you can expect to deal with on arrival, and being incredibly gracious of everything. In other words, don't expect things to fall into place uh, with amazing customer service and other neoliberal assumptions you might carry. <laughs> the fact is, is that it's it's a even in the Bahamas, we, I'm sure we come across this in a small way, but but when you get into the African continent or even Central and South America, um, you're really learning human skills. You, the instruction side of you is really becoming on how to become personable and relate to them um, because, um, I, I, I don't know, I just would say that's a big, a big part of the lesson is just being able to really uh, be a good human and... and, and um, figure out how to accomplish your goals without uh, foisting uh, your timetable on them. <laughs> now, Adam, you yeah, mentioned uh, EAPIS a couple times. Now, for those that don't know or understand what that is, could you uh, define that for me? 
Yeah, so essentially, um, EAPIS is a system where the FA, uh, well, the basic uh, USCIS and FAA work together to track you as you enter uh, uh, or leave the US. And uh, EAPIS is um, essentially like IACRA, you, you, you log in and you set up an account and you, you pre-populate it with uh, your air, airframe information and your pilot information. It's actually been quite some time since I've done an EAPIS filing. I think it's been about five years since my last one. So Randall and Sarah are likely much more current than I am. But all I can say is that um, if you operate under Part 91 and you cross the border, you're, you're a de facto air carrier in the eyes of, of USCIS. They don't really distinguish anymore uh, between 121, 135, and 91. So you're, you're, you're basically being held to an uh, airline level database disclosures on movements. Um, is that accurate, Sarah and Randall? My, my last EAPIS was 48 hours ago, and, and I think there are a couple little pieces to think about. Yeah, you, you need to go online and fill out EAPIS for an arrival in the United States. You need to get your sticker from DTOPS as well, which requires an account. Um, if you end up doing that last minute, you can always just show them your registration number and say, hey, I signed up even though I didn't get the sticker yet. But don't forget to call. There's a requirement that you call. Yeah. And I, I remember arriving in Portland, Maine uh, with a student actually uh, coming back from Canada on an international flight with, uh, with a flight student. And uh, we arrived into Portland, Maine and there was no customs there to greet us. And I called the tower and tower called customs because it would have been helpful to have the customs officer's cell phone, but I didn't and there was no one at the office. And um, the tower calls back um, on the landline and says, he's on his way, he says not to leave the airplane. And I'm thinking, okay. And an hour later he shows up and he said, who's responsible for this? And I went, oh, here we go. <laughs> and, um, and sure enough, he looks at me and he says, you didn't call. I said, well, sir, I did call and I got no answer. Well, you should have left a message. <laughs> didn't know to leave a message, but I'd like to show you, here's my telephone record of me calling Portland multiple times four hours ago. Here's my call to Bangor. Here's the officer I spoke with in Bangor. I'm sorry I wasn't able to reach you. He said, well, I'm glad you just showed me the record of you making the call because otherwise you would have gone on the list. And oh. if you go on the list, you are always going to have problems getting into and leaving the country ever again. And that's the kind of thing that you'll just fall right into and think, oh, I'll just fly over there. And like Sarah says, if you get in it without going with somebody who does it before, the number of things that you could miss is so yeah. high <laughs> that you can really fall in a hole. Uh, I'll give you another really quick example. Was in the Bahamas five years ago in my 172, had filed an IFR flight plan, was holding short, they said, you're gonna hold there for about 20 minutes waiting for release. And I said, well, I'll just go VFR. They said, great, clear for takeoff. So I took off. And so I'm flying along and I get on with Palm Beach Approach and she says, yeah, I don't have you in my system. I said, no, I've got my squat code. She says, sir, I don't have your flight plan. Mm -hmm. Because of course I had filed an IFR flight plan. I had an IFR squawk. And um, at this point, since I'm VFR, I'm 200, I'm 2000 feet under the clouds. The clouds, cloud tops about 10,000 feet. I'm 2,000 feet under the clouds. I'm five minutes from the ADIS boundary, moving at about 100 knots in my little 172. And she says, can't help you, try flight service. So I pull up flight service, and uh, there are five other people on frequency, and he says, stop. Everybody just stop. Now, whoever that was that was calling just east of Lauderdale, go. And I said, 7-2 Golf, need a flight, need a squat code. 
So he got right back to me. I ended up cutting in line. He said, you're already on a VFR flight plan. Here's your squawk, punched it in, called approach. And she said, great, I've got you, no big deal. But that was a hard lesson that I was learning while I was at 2000 feet under the clouds out over the water minutes from the ADIS. And that kind of stuff can really get you in trouble. So um, for those that uh, are looking to actually sort of integrate this into their flight, uh, not flight plans, but their lesson plans with students and, and sort of sell this as a service that they provide, um, you know, would you structure a plan more as a sort of mission-based flight instruction plan or like what would you do there? Well, um, the first thing is I would reinforce the importance of understanding where you're going and their local regulations. I mean, under IKO, there is a level of standardization, but unfortunately, the level of standardization is not really enough for you to be able to just jump in there and go. So my best recommendation would be location specific. Um, you know, if a student wants to specifically fly to the Bahamas, that's a very different procedure than, let's say, flying to Haiti, um, because Haiti has very special entrance clearance requirements and everything like that. So I would definitely make it more mission specific and emphasize the importance of, hey, just because this is the rule here doesn't mean it's the rule there. Yeah, and that makes perfect sense. Now, for somebody who's in, let's say, Kansas City, they're in the middle of the country, they're nowhere near any borders or any of that kind of stuff. Is there a way that an instructor who's looking to sort of work with a student who has these kinds of interests, can you simulate this in any way? I mean, I, I suppose you could. Um, for me, it's always best if I'm going to try to learn Chinese to go to China. Um, and so I like to make it really applicable to students. And so you could certainly have the conversation with somebody in Kansas City. I would, I would want to really have a look at what that student is interested in and what it is they want to do. And if, if they're dreaming of going to Mexico, then absolutely, let's have that conversation. But I would much rather schedule a flight to Mexico and take them um, and get them lit up around the possibility of, you know, having that conversation in Cancun or, Puerto, you know, Puerto Vallarta or something. Um, so that we actually do it and really bring it home to them. So I, I think it, you know, as you're thinking through what you can offer and you say, hey, I offer international flight work, um, you know, the world anymore and social media, people get inspired by what they see you doing rather than what they see you listing that you can do. Um, and I think just being out there and, and having that kind of life and doing those flights and reaching out to students who are excited about those flights. And when I say students, think back to, you know, the person who's just bought themselves, uh, you know, a, a Baron 58 or something like, it doesn't have to be a primary student who's thinking, gosh, it'd be great to go abroad someday. Uh, it can be the, you know, it can be the person who just decided that they need to buy a Challenger for themselves. And they now want to make Europe trips and need to look at, you know, refueling and ETOPS and all that good stuff. So mm -hmm. um, student is really broad, broad on this spectrum. And I just looked uh, while Randall was speaking, I was running a four flight line between KMCI and I started off with Winnipeg, but believe it or not, I dragged it down to the very southern chunk of Ontario that dips into upper, basically, you know, around Erie, Pennsylvania, and that's only 600 miles. So in a, in a 182, that'd be a four and a half hour leg. You know, given that there's a cross-country IFR component for, for the instrument rating, uh, you know, long cross-country or, or there's time looking to be built, even in, even in Kansas, um, you can find a Canadian uh, context to, to play with to kind of do it in, in real time. The, the simulation question, that's a good answer. I'm, I'm, 
there's so many things to go wrong. Like Sarah was saying, there's so many things to track. You, you really want to kind of be in the, uh, in the, in the thick of it to kind of have it all happen. Um, and I would say that the four or well, 603 nautical from MCI to uh, Chatham, Ontario would, would be worth it. Mm -hmm. One, one other tiny little piece here and then I'll, and then I'll shut up. Um, I had a student who was building time in a duchess and we were in Maine and I said, well, let's go to Florida and then the Bahamas and then let's go across to LA and come back. He's like, can I bring my wife? I said, absolutely. And so it suddenly turned into a trip and now there was an international component and you know, they put me up in a five star in the Bahamas and that was all right too. And especially now, there's a lot of COVID restrictions. I mean, that's another thing to take into consideration. Mm. And as we go forward, things might be changing with that. I mean, it changes by the week. I mean, you look at the NOTAMs and they issue a new one every week as to what the restrictions are. Um, as far as simulating it, you could always call up Randall and have him speak a bunch of French real quick, quick to you on the frequency and then try to decode uh, what the other <laughs> pilots are saying up in Quebec. <laughs> as yeah, a student I pilot, I flew in Brazil and I was completely lost. Yeah, I'll tell you, as a Quebecer, I'm born in Montreal, but I got all my ratings in the U.S., so I, even though I'm Canadian, I did all my FAA tickets first before I got my Transport Canada tickets. And having flown, you know, in many places all over the world, I will tell you the only place in the world where they don't speak English on the radio when you're away from the big airports is Quebec. It's it's unbelievable. Uh, 126.7 is their en route frequency, and there 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 are people just – speaking French. <laughs> and so now that's rare. You know, if you, if you hear a, a Japanese airliner talking to a Russian controller, it's going to be in English. Mm -hmm. um, but there are places in the world, I'm sure besides Quebec. Um, but, but it, it is, it is mind boggling that, that you, you can get out there um, and, and be around some non, some non English speakers on the radio. So we've talked about some things that, uh, you know, are challenging for those that are getting into it. Um, you know, one of the things we also want to highlight are, are a lot of the positives. And I think some of that is inherent in the conversation. But when we're talking about the idea that doing some international experience for students benefits them, whether they want to travel to a new place that they've never been, or whether they want to purchase that uh, airplane that's capable of something that they might not have originally been trained in, Let's talk about the instructors. Um, you guys all do things outside of your sort of instructional background. Um, you know, how much of the international experience that you gained prior to doing some of those things, or even sort of in the beginning, do you think would translate into kind of a, a boost in the instructor's profile or resume, if you will, um, for whatever it is that they might have planned next? Oh, I was gonna say that uh, right off the bat, um, the type of work that Sarah and Randall and I do on the mentoring side, basically the more international experience you have and the faster you can get it, the more you're, you're of value in being essentially a highly capable, educated companion that can help them safely navigate new scenarios, which are, as Sarah mentioned, are fraught with so many places to, to fall down. So I think if you think about the flight instructor as not a safety pilot, but a, a, an instructor that is also a, a mentor, really, somebody who is just there to make sure that they are learning without any major violations <laughs> inadvertently being committed, um, which are stunningly easy to do. Um, that's the main value, is having that feather in your cap of the international operations makes, me, makes you infinitely more useful as a, a, you know, essentially you're a contract pilot that's attached to the student. 
Yeah, and, and it's really hard. This is one of those catch-22s, and I know we run into this a lot in aviation where you need experience to get experience. Right. And, you know, it really is. But, you know, there's a lot of people out there who do have the experience. And I know that, you know, people are eager to just kind of start this on their own. And you probably can, you know, with very light international stuff, like bigger airports, maybe Canada and Mexico. And But, you know, if you're going to get beyond that level, you're really going to need to work with somebody who's done it before another good resource too is that i know it's extremely expensive and probably more per leg than the cost of hiring one of us per day last time i got a quote it was and i do all the stuff myself so um you know you can always use a handling company and they can also kind of walk you through all the stuff you need you can submit all your documents to them in advance but once again they're incredibly expensive i think mm. just to fly across to canada it's over 700 dollars for them mm. to do all the paperwork for you but once you've done it a few times um, you can use them as a resource you can probably start doing it on your own after that point having a second language is really helpful so spanish is i think immensely valuable um, and uh, for, for the planet. Um, Randall and I are both cursed in that we just have French, uh, although Ru Randall's Russian is not terrible. Um, but but language, language is really important. Um, and um, yeah, so I think in terms of comfort with borders, to the extent you can make an effort to at least show that you're trying, um, you can win the hearts and minds of any armed people you might be dealing with to finalize uh, movements. <laughs> you know, if you think about the whole toolbox thing and the idea that we gravitate towards what excites us, we pull the thread on something we're interested in, um, you know, wouldn't it, doesn't it make sense to build a career based on something that really excites mm -hmm. you? And so if bush and tailwheel flying and skis are your thing, like, you know, like it is for, for Adam and Sarah, then why not pull on those strings? Why not put a bunch of money into a gorgeous super cub? Why not become an expert on a 180 like Adam is with thousands of hours of skis and, and float time on 180s? Um, and so when people call you looking for work, it's one thing to think of it as a resume booster. It's another thing to think, I've built a life that really lines up with what this person needs. Adam called recently and said, hey, there's a you know, there's a gig we might be able to use and they're looking for flight support and they're going to be making regular trips to Quebec. So they need French speaking pilots. And we both said, yep, let's do that. Um, I had somebody ask for flight support the other day who said, starting in the spring, we're going to be making regular trips into Canada. I'm like, well, done that a bunch, happy to do it. So keep growing the skills that you're excited about and those, those opportunities will keep coming up. And the more that you can work in a straight line doing a straight thing, congratulations. Um, I have a really hard time doing it. Adam has a hard time doing it because we're both serial entrepreneurs who want to do eight things at once. He's like, fly a phenom? Sure, let's do that. Fly a 180? Absolutely, let's do that. That, you know and so do the stuff you love and once you're good at it and um, you'll be able to create a career from it because we always have a need for competent pilots and instructors there will always be a need for training for support for flying airplanes helping other people fly airplanes and why not grow the skills that you're excited about growing so you can keep being asked to do those kinds of gigs that's that's yeah if, if I can add to that uh, John um... To, to, to piggyback on what Randall's saying, and, and Sarah can attest to this as well, I'm sure, which is that post-COVID, we're going to have um, very soon, I believe, we'll be back to the pilot shortage place. But when we return to the pilot shortage, 
I believe the critical shortage is actually going to be CFIs, uh, specifically functional, dedicated teachers that really like mentoring and that kind of stuff. And the, the reason why I'm mentioning that is per what Randall's saying about following what makes you passionate. Let's say amphibious float flying in a caravan is what you want to do. Um, you don't have to be afraid to pursue that somewhat recklessly because you're going to be wanted whatever it is you do. As long as you keep adding ratings, as long as you keep building your CV, if you, if you want to take a left turn and go make very little money, uh, you know, in Bimini or whatever, Botswana, it, 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 it's not going to hurt you because the, the number of qualified people that are required to move flying machines around is shrinking quite rapidly relative to the, the, the demand that's coming. It, it seems counterintuitive during COVID, but there's a really good guy called Addison Scotland who runs a thing called Aviation Insight, and he wrote a very good uh, analytical piece explaining how there's another wave coming, which will be much more painful than the current wave. Sarah can probably attest to this from the 121 world, which is that the, the level of retirements and attrition is, is way ahead of whatever pain COVID is doing right now. Um, and we haven't even seen the lights turn back on yet. So when they are, I think instructors, I think instructors that are true freelancers are going to be able to write their own ticket. Um, and, and they should not, and, and, and that should be a way to have confidence in doing what excites you, not, not necessarily pursuing something that's safe and reliable and maybe a little less sexy. A lot of people ask me how I got into ferry flying and particularly how I got into international ferry flying. Part of the secret behind all of it was the fact that I was a flight instructor. A lot of times an owner buys an airplane who lives overseas, they live in Europe or Central America, and they want somebody to go along with them on the flight who can teach them how to fly internationally and how to conduct that operation. A lot of times some of these people are planning these extravagant flights, flights around the world, or maybe they just want to continue to go back and forth to Europe, even in their small airplane. And being a flight instructor, has opened so many doors and the ability for me to instruct and mentor and teach somebody else exactly how to do this safely. If it wasn't for being a CFI, I wouldn't be where I am now and I wouldn't have nearly the amount of opportunities that I've had with international flying. And with that, thank you guys for, for joining me today. Um, I think that uh, this is a topic that we could probably talk for the next uh, two hours about because it, it is such an interesting and, and sort of complicated topic. Um, it's got a lot of risk, it sounds like, but it also has a lot of reward to it. Um, and just to kind of put a bow on all of this, it sounds like the best way to get into it is to find someone who's already doing it and, and sort of job shadow or be mentored by, uh, um, by that individual. Um, is there a place where somebody could find uh, a list of people who do this so that they, if they were interested, they could contact someone? Well, Adam's creating it right now. He's building a CFI mentor where CFIs can go and show up and list their qualifications and what they've been doing. Um, a lot of times on the social media forums, you can tell who's who and um, who's done what. Sometimes you can't, sometimes they're quiet and you barely notice them and you know, it turns out they have thousands of, of, of hours of doing something really remarkable. Um, but oftentimes when you search around, you'll see who's doing what. And as we keep making friends and meeting other instructors, uh, you know, the network grows. Randall, Adam, and Sarah, thank you so much for your time today. I, I very much appreciate. I know you guys are, are very busy. Um, and uh, once again, Randall, congratulations on finishing your ATP CTV. Thanks. <laughs>